Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary. And hey, real quick, I just want to say, this week we passed 4,500 listens to the episode. And my mom couldn't listen to that many episodes even if she tried. Which means that there's at least somebody else out there listening. And for that, I appreciate it. And if you could like, if you could... Uh, follow, if you could comment, if you could rate, however you could interact with the podcast, just to let me know there's somebody out there besides my mom listening to all 4,500 of these listens or (laughs) streams, I'd appreciate it. Hey, we're going to wrap up this little mini series we had on the storms of life tonight. We're going to look at the silver lining behind the cloud, and I'll see you on the side. With this lull in the conversation, I'm going to begin. Uh, so tonight, I'm wrapping up this little four-part series that I've been calling The Storms of Life, and in this uh, little mini-series, what I've tried to do is use these stories that we find in the gospel account according to John, and there is a portion of John's um, gospel account where he lays out these miracles that that Jesus does as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And each one of these accountings is known as a sign or a wonder. So um, some people call this little portion in the book the book of signs. They also call it the book of wonders. And they all correspond again with, with Jesus's claim that he is God in the flesh, that he is definitely different than you or I. And so what we've been doing is looking at these stories and then looking at them through the context of the storms that we face in our lives. Tonight, obviously, as we round the corner and finish this little mini-series, tonight's lesson is called the storm clouds silver lining, right? And we've heard that phrase before, every cloud has a silver lining. Now, we may or may not have actually thought about it before. Maybe we have, but just for a second, let's put this idea in the front of our brains because the feeling behind that sentiment, that feeling behind that that phrase, every cloud has a silver lining, at its core is actually what we've been talking about the past few weeks. And what is that sentiment? What does it actually mean? That even though, even though we're faced with a storm cloud in our present, there is hope for sunny days soon, right? That's the idea. The sun shining behind the clouds is what gives the cloud its silver lining. And that gives us hope. It gives us reassurance that the storms that we faced won't last forever. Now, I have pessimistic friends that say that every silver lining has a cloud. But I I don't want us to believe that. I want us to actually be encouraged that there is indeed hope for the future. One of life's toughest challenges is, honestly, just staying optimistic about the future. I think most of us would agree with that, whether we're going through severe trials in our lives or not. Just the general idea of where we're headed, many of us have difficulty staying optimistic about the future. And certainly, adverse conditions in our lives can cloud our visions of tomorrow, 
And certainly, without blame, make it very difficult, sometimes impossible, for us to maintain a positive attitude. We can be tempted to lose hope very easily. The good news is, though, and we'll be reaffirming this throughout the current series, or we have been, rather, that Christ has encouraging truth for us so that there's no need to ever actually lose hope despite the storms of our lives. Tonight's story I'm going to begin in the gospel account according to John, again, the 11th chapter, first verse of that chapter. The Bible says a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one you love is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it is for the glory of God. I, the Son of God, will receive glory from this. Now, of those book of signs, the seven of them, this is the final encouraging conversation with Jesus in John's good news account. Each of which preceded his seven sign miracles. Okay, these statements about who he was. Three conversations actually precede this particular miracle. One between Christ and his disciples, one each with two of the grieve, and one each rather with two the two grieving sisters of Lazarus. And we'll actually consider parts of all three of those conversations this evening. Lazarus' illness eventually led to a temporary death, but the good news, as Jesus said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. In this great story, Lazarus is resurrected. Death is not the end for those who follow Christ. Death, for every believer, is temporary. And what seemed like a hopeless situation became an indisputable treatment, a testament to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. Grief and despair turned to joyful celebration. Heartbreak turned to amazement. Sorrow turned to new love and admiration for the Son of God. A bleak diagnosis made way for effective cures for keeping hope alive in the midst of the storms of life. So let's look at some of these ways in which we can allow our hope to be sustained through this story. The first one is this. We need to create and maintain a personal relationship with Jesus. Let's see this in our story. Remember, listen, nothing will give you greater hope in your life and hope for your future than knowing Jesus. Absolutely nothing. The story of Lazarus is a story of hope, and a catalyst for that hope is Jesus. Who was this man, Lazarus? The communication from his, ter- first two, or from his two sisters remind Jesus, verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, Lazarus, just like you and just like me, is someone that Christ loved. Now, let me also tell you about these, uh, these group of 
siblings. These three siblings were Christ's close friends. Christ loved them. Later, when Jesus arrived at the tomb of Lazarus, John 11.35 says, Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved them. We know from Luke chapter 10 that Jesus had been the recipient of this family's hospitality. And that too gives us insight into the relationship between Christ and his family. During this family, rather. During Christ's ministry, he relied upon the kindness of his friends and the kindness of his followers to provide him and his disciples food and shelter. And this family was so close to Jesus that they provided one of his regular lodging places. These folks were more than just mere acquaintance. These were dear friends. They sat at Christ's feet and heard his words intimately. And if we can develop that kind of relationship with Jesus, a bond that is constant and close, we can remain hopeful when we're in the storms that occur in our lives. So creating a personal relationship with Christ is so, so important. So how do we do it? The Bible's crystal clear on this particular point. And it's not only, it's, it's clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 25 and 14 says, The Lord is the friend of those who obey him. And Jesus himself says in John 15, 14, You are my friends if you obey me. How do we establish and maintain a friendship with God? It's very simple. We follow God's instructions. We live by God's precepts. We do what God asks us to do. And the truth is some people hear those words and they get turned off by them because they misunderstand them. Because the point here is not just, oh, so God's love for me isn't so unconditional after all. Apparently, there are strings attached. I have to obey God. I have to jump through all of these hoops, right? I have to do all of these things for God to consider him me, his friend. And that's the wrong attitude. The truth should be more like, since God has proven he wants to be my friend, then I want to be God's friend. And like any other friend that we have, right? I want to do things that make my friend happy. I want to live a life that pleases my best friend. God wants out of our relationship what all friends want. He wants us to be considerate of him. Of course, God deserves more than any other friend we have since he's the creator and the savior. But the point is we treat God like a friend when we obey him. And as we maintain that relationship with him through obedience to him, we remain hopeful about the future. Future and friends, rather, friends could give us hope about the future. We know that they'll be there for us. They know that we're not going to be alone in the midst of hard times. And this is true of no one more than Jesus. 
So if we want to remain hopeful about the future, establish and maintain a relationship with Jesus, the next of our cures for remaining hopeful about the future, the next silver lining, I guess, is to focus on God's glory, not our worry. Verse 4 of our story says, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God. I, Jesus says, I, the Son of God, will receive glory from this. And sometimes we, and when I say we, I mean all of us here, we, we get so uptight about the future, but we worry too much about the possible difficulties that may come up and not enough in our life about God getting the glory, honor, and praise. It's only when we're primarily fixed on the bad things that might happen to us that we begin to lose our future, our hope for the future. But when we think about God getting glory, we don't have to be stressed out. We don't have to be fearful. We don't have to have anxiety about the future. We don't have to worry about God's future because God doesn't have a future. God lives in the eternal present. And nowhere is this truth emphasized more emphatically than God, John's good news account. Remember, John records seven instances where Jesus says, I am. Not I was, not I'm going to be. I am. Not past tense, not future tense, present tense. These seven, by the way, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the seven. When you establish in our minds in our hearts, in our souls, that Jesus is I am. And when we can focus on giving him glory, we don't have to be uptight about our tomorrows. When it comes to remaining hopeful about the future, there is all the difference in the world between a life that is focused on God's glory and a life that is focused on worrying about the bad things that may or may not actually even happen to us. And why should we worry about our future? Remember, God is already there. Let him worry about it for you. You just concentrate on living a life that will bring God glory and he'll take care of the rest. Death is the greatest future enemy that each one of us has. And Christ has already blown that out of the water. So why should we worry about anything else? I mean, I know that those anxieties still pop up in every one of our lives. Trust me, I take a pill every day because of it, right? But that, but that doesn't mean that that is the truth. That, it, that is what we should be striving for, right? It doesn't, just saying the words, doesn't make it just all go away. And that's the point of talking about it. But that should be what we're seeking. When Jesus announced to his disciples that they're going to go back to Judea, they were worried about their future, and Jesus is with them. 
They were thinking about the bad things that could happen if they went back to Judea. Let me read this to you, John 11, 8. But his disciples, when he says it's time to go back to Judea, his disciples object. Teacher, they said. Only a few days ago, the Jewish leaders in Judea were trying to kill you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replies, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. As long as it is light, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of the world, he's saying. Only at night is there danger of stumbling because there's no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Jesus knew that he still had some daylight to do the work of the Father. There were still things that needed to take place on God's timing in this particular moment. So he intentionally waits before going to the aid of his family of friends because he already knows the future. The disciples and the family, obviously, were anxious about the future. But Jesus is deliberate in his response. And the reason why Jesus is so calculated is very important. And, and it's important to know, it wasn't because Jesus didn't care. He cared deeply. He cares deeply about your concerns over the future. And we must remember that when we are tempted to be apprehensive about the future, his reasoning for delay was to create a focus on God's glory. John eleven thirty seven. 37, story continues. But some said about Jesus, this man healed a blind man. Why couldn't he keep Lazarus from dying? And again, Jesus was deeply troubled. Then they came to the grave. It was a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, said, Lord, by now the smell would be terrible because he's been dead for four days. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Jesus was waiting to make his appearance in Bethany until after Lazarus had been dead four days so that the miracle would be undeniable. Jesus had actually resurrected people before this, right? But none of those instances were with anyone or someone rather dead after bodily decomposition had set in. That's why Martha didn't want the stone to be rolled away. But Christ's timing was such that his enemies could not possibly contradict the validity of this occurrence. And as a result, God will receive a tremendous amount of glory from the magnitude of this one miracle. Could Jesus have received glory by healing Lazarus and preventing his death? Sure. He could have received some praise. There could have been some honor for him in that. But remember, we've been talking about this these four weeks. One of the key themes of John's good news account is that Jesus was all about timing. 
on seven different occasions. John says, speaking of Jesus, his time has not yet come. Jesus intentionally allows his friend Lazarus to die. He intentionally allowed his good friends Mary and Martha to grieve because it was just about to become his time, his time to suffer and die for the sins of humanity. And sometimes he intentionally allows us to face discomfort and distress. But we can rest assured as children of God that it will work out for the good. We can trust in, we can believe in God's timing, and it is impeccable. The resurrection of Lazarus becomes a primary catalyst to stir up the opposition of the enemy. This miracle, guys, has all kinds of implications and how the story goes down from here, right? This one thing was so undeniable that it caused the needle, so to speak, to move. And the, this enemy needed to be stirred up to this point so that they could push for Christ's execution according to God's precise timing. Let me show you what I mean here. Six days before his crucifixion, The Lazarus account happens right before Palm Sunday. I just want to point this out. Okay, Uh, Palm Sunday to us, the beginning of the uh, Passover festival for the Jewish people. That's why they're there. They're not there for Palm Sunday, right? But uh, uh, Bethany is right outside Jerusalem. And it is like, um, it's like Guthrie, okay? And if the Passover was in um, Oklahoma City, let's say, for people listening to this podcast, you are not going to get this reference, right? But for us here listening tonight, if you were going to Passover, whether you were going down 33, whether you were coming down I-35, going up I-35, right? Well, I guess not going up I-35, but you see what I'm saying? Like, no matter what, you're still going to have to converge through Guthrie to get where you're going, Bethany was kind of that hub spot on the road from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. So there were tons and tons of people going north to south into Jerusalem, but because it's so close, there's tons and tons of people coming south to north. A lot of them are food vendors and uh, religious uh, talisman vendors, uh, people who can arrange for you to Uh, stay places in Jerusalem, they would walk up the road and meet the people in Bethany and sell them goods and trade things with them and maybe do uh, services for them in Jerusalem on their way into Jerusalem. And so there were tons and tons of people around, both coming north to south and south to north, when this event happens. When all of the people arrived, this is John 12, 9 and 10, When all of the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him. Also, I am, uh, yes, right? Six days before the crucifixion is when this happened, okay? uh, They want to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decide to kill Lazarus too. Pretty ironic, right? Plotting to kill 
a man Jesus just resurrected from the dead. And it says why they want to kill Lazarus. Verse 11. For it was because of him that many people had deserted them, the religious leaders, and begun believing in Jesus. Can we see the wisdom of God's plan here? This is why Jesus waited to respond to the request of his friends. The people involved in this tragedy, temporarily, right? His family, if they had their way, Lazarus would have never died, right? They would have saved Lazarus' death in the first place. The human desire was not for the resurrection of Lazarus. The human cry was to keep him from dying in the first place. But if Lazarus had not died... Think about this. One, he couldn't have been wonderfully, miraculously resurrected. Two, according to the account we just read, many people would not have been convinced to leave their lifeless religion that's been spawned by these priests and begin following Jesus. The religious leaders would not have been angry enough to finally carry out their plot to kill Christ And the world would not actually have a savior. God knows the best time, the best place, and the best way to bring glory to himself. If we had our way, a lot of bad things that happen in our life would not happen to us. We would escape if it was our choice facing challenges. But then we we wouldn't get to see the glory of God as much. We want God to secure our future in the moment, but God's love for us doesn't pamper us. It perfects us. The fact that he loves us is not a guarantee that we don't have problems. We need problems. We need to have our future challenged. Verse 5, although Jesus loved Mary, sorry, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was, for the next two days and not go to them. Finally, after two days, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Let me jump back to his decision to return before he left. Because although God loves you, sometimes he stays where he's at and does not come to you on your timing. And that's why we get impatient with God. Mary and Martha were hurt that Jesus hadn't come earlier. John 11 and 20 says, when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. (laughs) You know, you can almost sense the resignation in her voice. Yes, Martha said, when everyone else rises on Resurrection Day. And and as if to say, no, I don't mean later, I mean now. Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They're given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. Do you believe this, Jesus asks of Martha Now, I think Mary stayed home because she was mad at Jesus. The account doesn't record that. And even if it was 
for sure true. I don't know if it would have been recorded, and I could be wrong about that, but I think that we are like that sometimes. When God lets us go through tough times, when not coming to our assistance right away, we can be upset. We can be mad. If Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he get, let him get sick in the first place? Why did he let him die? He healed the nobleman's son from a distance. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance. When Mary finally does come out of the house, her words to Christ are these. John eleven thirty two. 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? That's the very exact same thing Martha said to Jesus previously in verse 21. It's almost like saying, Mary is saying, where have you been? Jesus, we're friends. We are family, right? We've been in trouble here. You're supposed to be our friend and you weren't here with us. Have we ever said that to God? I think we all have. Maybe not out loud, but we've said it. One thing we have confirmed in this series is that God indeed always has a plan. And when we are confronted with difficulties in our lives, it's times that they become opportunities that we can turn and trust in the word of God. Follow what God says, even we don't understand, even if we don't understand even possibly how things could work out. The plan may not fit our timing, but it will be a plan that will eventually lead to God getting glory. And remember, guys, that's the main thing. We must keep God getting the glory the main thing. Whenever our life becomes imbalanced, to the point we're concerned more with our success and our welfare, right? And when that happens and we lose that balance, then all of a sudden we become very anxious about our future. But when we're focused on God getting the glory, we can lay our heads on the pillow at night and sleep the sleep of peace. Which leads to the next cure prescription or silver lining, right? We've got so far establishing and maintaining a friendship with Christ, Practice concentrating on getting God the glory and not worrying about our future. And the third prescription that we need to fill to remain hopeful about our future is we need to live a resurrection life. Lazarus and his story is not so much a picture of future resurrection of the children of God as he is an example of what it means to live a resurrected life right here, right now on earth. The story of Lazarus is a wonderful illustration of what happens to a person who makes a faith commitment to Jesus. Before coming to Christ, friends, we are all spiritually dead. Like Lazarus, our only hope is in the power of God. And when the power of God enters our life, we're made spiritually alive. The grace of God changes us. Others see us changed. And we become an example of God's love and power. There, there are actually no recorded words of Lazarus in the Bible. But as we've already seen, he was a very effective witness because of the change that Christ had made in him. Can you imagine being dead for four days and then emerging into the light of day? Would you not think that your entire world would take on a new meaning? That you wouldn't have a new perspective, a new purpose? The things you once considered important now are going to look very insignificant to you. And guess what? 
That's precisely what happens to us when we become followers of Christ. Now, if we live a resurrection life, if we choose to do so. When they rolled the stone away from the entrance to the tomb of Lazarus, John eleven forty three 43 says, Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out, bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. And maybe someone listening, maybe someone here tonight needs to let go. You need to be set free. You may have already made a faith commitment to Christ, but you continue to keep worrying about your future. You keep worrying, fretting about what might or might not happen. Let Christ set you free from that today. And let him help you to remain hopeful about the future. And may we truly see the silver lining in the cloud. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, gang. You know that story of Lazarus there at the end of Jesus' public ministry is, is just so incredibly filled with meaning. There's all sorts of implications that take place with that miracle that we just don't have time to cover tonight, today, whenever you're listening. <laughs> but more than anything, it shows us that even even when we feel like all hope normally would be lost, even even when we go past the possibility of salvation, Jesus is there. God is there. It's not a past moment. It's not a future moment from our perspective, Jesus says, I am. God is. Despite our present circumstance, despite the storms in our life, that gives us a silver lining. At least, at least, something to think about. Hey friend, until next week, be well. I'll see you then.